Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. That's me. Eric Ostrich. Hello, hello. And today we're joined with our special guest, Miriam Pena. Miriam, can you, uh, I, I'm, we're really glad to have you on. So I, I, if I were just to kind of give people uh, a little background, you recently presented at the Elixir Conf uh, 2019. You gave an awesome presentation around performance tuning app our applications and some of the new features that came out with the Beam. And we're really glad to have you on. So I would love to hear a little bit about your experience and journey kind of coming to Elixir and Erlang. So what can you, and, and where you're working, what kind of problems you're solving? So maybe you can just give a little background on who you are and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Hi everyone, I'm really glad that you invited me here uh, to the show today. Uh, so my background in, I guess I started working with computers really when I was 18 I, and um, just like pretty much like everyone else, uh, when those times where they barely had internet, and I think Erlang was the first uh, programming language that I used in a professional setting. And, and this happened by, by chance, kind of, because I had an internship and happened to be in Erlang. And, and, they, and I remember those very early days when I was having those crash errors that was driving me insane because there was no way I could read what actually they meant. And it would take me hours just to figure out the most basic stuff. Uh, but that was a long time ago. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So uh, I think I've been working uh, in this environment all, almost all my professional career I, I think I stopped counting the years but I think it's more than around 12 years working with Erlan. I have some experience in Elixir. I think uh, I counted uh, maybe eight or nine hours writing Elixir code. Sorry about that. Maybe do you want to, shall I go out now? Shall I leave? Uh, <laughs> no, we're glad yeah. you came. No, I'm just, I'm just kind of joking. Um, but um, like I've read a lot, uh, read about it today. I'm super like, actually excited about all the potential because it, it feels uh, it's bringing a lot of things uh, to the table. It's taking Erlang to the next new level. So I've been working uh, programming uh, very high-scale, uh, distributed, scalable systems in, in Erlang. And as a reference, I'm working at the moment on a system that handles 2 million requests per second in Ireland and has distributed around five regions uh, and we serve ads. Uh, we serve those ads uh, that remind you of those things uh, that you have recently seen in the past that you recently want to definitely want to buy in a couple of days. Yeah. So that, that's cool. I just want to make sure people caught that. So like in, at the time we're recording this, this is uh, the week of Thanksgiving. Oh, sorry. And, and What's fun is she's like, we were talking before the show started and Miriam, like this is their, 
this is a, their Super Bowl season. They're like, this is their big time because this is, you know, they serve ads. I, I thought that was like, this is million, literally their Super Bowl. Yeah. yeah. Like yes. 2 million like, requests per second that they're having to handle across five regions, they're serving ads. And, you know, these are like Black Friday, you know, like this is, this is like, this is game day for them. Yeah. And she's taking a break out of that to, because they wrote their system so well, it just doesn't have issues. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could have said that better. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so one of the fun things is, so she is the perfect person to be kind of helping us understand some of these new features that came out in the Beam and uh, how performance tuning is an important process when you reach that level of scale where it matters. So for a lot of our audience, like when we're like in maybe in the startup mode, you're just trying to validate that I have a project that actually solves a business need and, op, you know, optimizing for performance is not necessarily what I'm trying to solve for, unless that is actually the differentiator I'm trying to do is, is perform around performance. But as my project grows, as my team expands, as the problems that we're solving get bigger, then we need to be aware of these things. And so you gave an awesome confer uh, conference presentation, which we will link to in the show notes called Beam Extreme. And, uh, and you talked about some of the features that were coming out in the newer OTP 22 release. Uh, and that, your talk was the first time I'd actually heard about these new features, uh, which is really cool. Uh, so I'm just curious about uh, if you had any like standout things that you think uh, people uh, would like to hear about and, and learn that came out in like the OTP 22 release. Mm -hmm. Well, the first time I, I actually heard about these features was when I was preparing the talk. So it was some, some news to me. I think uh, uh, they're becoming more and more popular uh, right now because they're very, very exciting. They have so much potential. And these are things that the community have asked for so many years and they're finally here. So this is super great. But what are we talking about? Uh, on OTP 21, after 21.3 was the first one that came out. They wanted to wait for the 22, but they just couldn't do it. So they just did it one ahead. Uh, it's called, uh, the first one, our favorite is persistent term. Um, it's uh, very, so when you work in, in very, in systems, that require a high, a high number of operations per second on certain parts of the code. And those certain parts of the code become a bottleneck easily. And, and we have been wondering uh, how to work around them. There's a specific case uh, that we have seen in the past in which you have to, let's say you have a big chunk of data, like a term or with a lot of elements on it. And that term barely changed along the life of your program. It can be the same term running for weeks or for days. So those are scenarios, um, if, if that particular structure is accessed through, uh, from if, if it is stored in one process and you have to send it to another process, uh, as by definition in, in Elixir, you have to copy all that memory from one process to the other. And, and that, and, and copying memory is very cheap, but if you do it frequently enough, it becomes a bottleneck. So we've been working around ways to avoid copying and people are really, really smart and they do crazy stuff to make that work. And what we have done in the past was to actually generate code uh, that have that configuration inside. Um, it's like you, you actually generate the code, you will compile it, you will load it on your system and then the actual configuration will be your, it will be code written, so it will be hard coded. So, and, and there is a special thing in Elixir that 
uh, most of the things are copied when you move them from one process to another, but there are cases in which not. And big binaries is the case we all know about. Like you have a big binary more than 64 bytes, I think. If you copy from one process to another, then it does not copy, it's just reference. So for code, it's the same. It's a very special space on, on the virtual machine space, which is the, it's, it's where uh, code lies, and that code doesn't get copied uh, when you pick it up. Uh, and that worked really well um, for a long, long time. But they, what they did with persistent service is to do it is, is so you don't have to compile your code, you don't have to generate your code, you can just use that thing called persistent term uh, new. And that will uh, provide you a way to store a big chunk of information and read it in constant, in, in, with no memory copy. Uh, and what will be the typical use case? Uh, one case we have used at Arrow, where I work, um, next one, uh, is uh, for instance, to to have uh, we store this we have this massive uh, configuration of with some information some specific information about our clients about their ads that doesn't really change that often and it's big enough that we have to uh, access it frequently and and that access is very of course expensive because we do it two million times per second so uh, by moving that configuration to the persistent term storage we actually save I think none of so. I think around 10, 15% of, uh, of CPU. And, and that is massive because we're talking about a system with hundreds of machines. So that's like thousands of dollars a month for a little change like, oh, just put this configuration in persistence rather than an ETS or, or somewhere else. And this is the kind of impact that is really mind blowing uh, for people who be chasing it uh, like, like us. Uh, the big, big, big problem with this is that um, it's very, it's cheap to read, very cheap to read. Uh, you just get a reference to the data. But when you write, whatever you're writing is bigger than whatever you have. Like if you have, write more words than you had before, uh, then you are going to trigger a garbage collection in the whole virtual machines. And garbage collections, we all know, are not very cheap, they, they block and they're not nice. So you shouldn't really do that. So it's okay, but you have to wait what you want to do. Maybe it's worth it, maybe it's not. It really, it's up to you. So you can you can update a persistent term, right? I've, I've actually never heard of them. Yeah, you can, you can definitely update them. Like if yeah. you have a word or something which is like a word or two words, you write it. And I don't think it triggers a garbage collection if you don't need more memory than you have. But if you do, then it will. You can change them. It's not recommended to do it for things you will change all the time, but definitely you could. Yeah, so specifically configuration is, is perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or for keeping a reference to, to something. Um, like there's another thing that came in this one in OTP22, which are counters. And they're really counters. Like what you would traditionally do with an ATS increase counter, uh, if you want to keep the number, like let's say the number of requests you're doing, or or what I say uh, sometimes for graphs, data uh, we use StatsD and DataDog. Uh, we graph a lot of information about how our system is performing. That will typically be stored on on a counter in a process or an ETS increase increase counter. If you need the performance, if you need more performance, um, you might even have a counter per scheduler. That's a bit insane, and uh, but uh, it, it, people has been doing it. 
uh, but with uh, there's this new model called counters who will give you the same uh, possibility to increase uh, the number to, to have um well, let me before we get back to counters, let me just do a little bit of a recap mm -hmm. uh, with what yeah. you're talking about with persistent terms. That's great. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. So uh, if you're listening to this, check out the show notes. We have a link to the documentation on around persistent term. Uh, and one of the things that she was saying, which I think is really cool, is how this is faster than ETS tables. ETS tables are considered a general uh, usage like in-memory cache. And they're, and they're always called very fast. Mm -hmm. And persistent term is something that uh, under the right circumstances will be a good fit for what you're doing. And so she gives the example of they had configuration for uh, that they were wanting to manage for a, a customer and that configuration doesn't change, uh, but they need to access it really fast. And so it's actually faster to use a persistent term uh, than an ETS table. And since they're trying to do 2 million uh, reads per second and, and they're having to continually pull this data, but it doesn't change, then that's a really great use case for it. Yes, it does. When you use that, just because when you use the persistent term, the data is not copied to every process that is using the data. That's, that's the reason. You're avoiding to having logs, uh, you're not copying the data to the heap of your process. Right, yeah, you're, so you're avoiding the whole memory copy process. Yes, and then, and then so the, the caveat to be aware, so check out the documentation because it has a great little section in there that talks about um, where it's good for these different types of uses. There's a little section on that. Uh, but saying that if you if it is something that you're trying to store that is mutated frequently, then that's not a good fit because it is uh, it, it forces like a garbage collection uh, for the entire Beam instance, as I understand it, uh, whenever you make those changes, and that that can be a very expensive process. So it's a it is a more advanced uh, tuning variable that is now available to us. And so now it's uh, Miriam, you were talking about. Uh, another feature called counters. And so I'll, I'll let you continue with that. So um, there's two new um, modules on RTP22, which are atomic and counters, and they both operate in 64-bit integers. And they provide highly efficient operations on, on worse, uh, worse size variables. The most common use I've seen is uh, the counter, it update a counter, the typical ETS, ETS update counter, you would do it with uh, a counter increment. So the, what happens here, it's, uh, it's a bit like a Howard very low level implementation and the speed changes uh, dramatically. Would, uh, for instance, um, if you compare the performance of an ETS update counter with a counter add, uh, you can get maybe around, depending on the, of course, of the type of, of um, the number of, of the parallel uh, parallelization to it, uh, you can get 50 or, or 60 or 70 times, uh, you can do 60 or 70 counter of the adds versus one ETS update counter. So that means that, you are, it's extremely, extremely fast because of its really low level implementation. 
Um, and I think it's a great use case for uh, applications uh, that are doing very heavy uh, counter operations, uh, like we would do uh, for, a, uh, for a statistical application. We all, we all log our, our data to systems like Datadog. So uh, if the tools that would not the data use that, that would be uh, a crazy uh, performance improvement. I didn't realize the benefit was so large. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. I would assume rate limiters just ought to use that. Didn't quite get that. I said I would assume that that would be very useful for a rate limiter. Ah, so like say. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So like the yeah. idea then is if I had, I'm wanting to track a counter per, I don't know, account perhaps. Process. Something. Yeah. Account. Yes. Account or endpoint uh, even. Like you want to limit the number of requests uh, per second that you want to operate of a specific time. You always have a counter saying how much you have and you increment, you decrement as requests come in. Right? So this would be a great example. Yeah, definitely. Cool. You just gave me an idea. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. That's the benefit of having these conversations. Like, wow, that's, thanks, Josh. Yeah. See, we were just saying before in our, our last podcast, uh, like there's Josh driven development. And so he did it again. So there you go. It's a real thing, apparently. <laughs> so one of the uh, things that I thought was, that I really got out of your presentation was just the realization of how much active development is happening in the OTP and Erlang community. You know, we talk about Elixir being built on Erlang and, you know, sometimes the perception might be that all of the cool new stuff is happening in Elixir. And that's not entirely true, right? There, yeah, there is new stuff because there are, uh, you know, there's new tooling, new libraries, uh, but a lot of stuff and is happening just in OTP itself. And it's, it is a moving growing, evolving system. And just uh, as, so us being aware of it as an Elixir developer, because, you know, when, when I, we're, we, we are still tied to the beam, right? And like, that's, that's the benefit, right? That we, we are built on this solid foundation. So as new features come out in the beam, that's good for us to be aware of so we can uh, take those same benefits and bring them into our applications. So like if, if I'm just, I guess what I'm trying to say is, don't just look at the Elixir release notes to see what's new in Elixir because that's not the whole picture, right? The rest of the picture is happening in Erlang. And so it's good to see what's happening with the release notes there, new beam features. And it's also good that we have people like Miriam who are sharing what, you know, and talking about these things as they see them uh, and raising the visibility because that's how I learned about it. So uh, just that, that's one of the big takeaways I got from your presentation, which I really appreciated. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, it's very it's very impressive all the all the efforts that the OTP team in in in, in the which is on a little office in Eric's in, in Ericsson in, in Stockholm. Um, they're doing a lot for for improving the the performance of this virtual machine that both systems are running on, and and it's really mind blowing how these little things they're doing uh, change the performance of the applications we're running. And for instance, uh, we, I, I remember last year as I was building this talk, I started to upgrade uh, the version of the OTP the code was running. And, and traditionally, I, we have to confess that we don't upgrade the version until we get to a really stable version. Uh, so we, we 
Princess when we wait for version number three of the edge release. So we would typically wait to uh, OTP 20 when it gets to 20.3 up. But uh, for instance, with OTP, uh, between OTP 19 and 20, uh, we saw almost a 20% performance gains for us. And, and I mean, that doesn't mean it's going to happen to everyone because it just happens that we hit a lot, something that they have optimized. And, and the, for instance, they, one of the biggest things they did there uh, is that Erlang literals are not longer copied uh, when you send a message. And that means like there's a lot of copying that has been avoided. And if you've done a lot of performance on ETS uh, tables as well, they've done performance strings and such. And then the same thing happened um, with OTP 20 and 21. We got a, as well like maybe a 10% kick on, on CPU improvements. Uh, because they also, I don't remember, I don't quite remember exactly what they did there. I think they did some optimization on on socket I/O events. So and I/O polling, I uh, I don't remember. So you have to check out the notes. And at the end of TP22, as as we saw, there's uh, there's these things and there's other things as well. They rewrote parts of the compilers. And uh, so uh, the compiler will be more, more, more smart than, than you are. Uh, and, and if you see my talk, there's uh, some examples of how, how the compiler actually uh, tries to organize the code you write so they execute this work for you. you could well, I, I will mention this. one of the things that you, you talked about in your presentation, which you're just kind of alluding to, is this idea of uh, how the... So check out her presentation. It's, it's awesome. She goes into depth and kind of shows examples. But it's like the idea that I might have a, I write several functions and they do different pattern matching. I have different clauses that are matching the different data in different ways. And the Bean compiler can look at that and say, oh, well, it's actually more efficient if I can check this, this type, you know, do this pattern match first and then this one second, uh, just to optimize those kinds of comparisons. And that's just something that's happening under the hood that I, it, when I upgrade to a newer OTP re release, uh, I just get that for free and I didn't even have to do anything. And uh, so one of the things I want to make sure people know is when we talk about OTP, we're talking about OTP 22, that is basically Erlang 22. So when we say Erlang and OTP, they're almost interchangeable with, with how they're discussed now because they are so uh, tightly, uh, re tightly related. So just mm -hmm. to clarify that. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clavo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. I was actually uh, scrubbing through the, that presentation before we started talking, and that's act that the slide that uh, Mark was just talking about was where I paused. <laughs> so it was interesting to, to, to look at that and, and whatnot. <laughs> I remember when I started uh, working with Erlang, everyone was saying that the order of your functional classes matters, and you should really focus on putting the first one after 
the first more important one first, and then the next one, and the next one. And you were thinking like you were optim micro optimization really, code by writing the right order. So it's really funny to see how that changed over time, and and it, it kind of still matters. But he they know so much better for you. And actually, I remember as I was writing. Um, because when I when I when I changed the, when I did the presentation I did this presentation first in, in code being in LLAN and then I did it in Elixir. So I remember I wrote the code in Elixir and I compiled it to assembly to check out what instructions we had. And I remember they were slightly different and I was slightly freaking out right before the presentation because maybe I got it all wrong and it was different in Elixir. And and, it, and what happened is that there was already a new Erlang version and out, and I was running in that version, and that version was already smarter than the previous one. So they decided to go one extra level and change that little thing just slightly to make things faster. And I was like, wow, this is mind blowing. So I'm good, uh, and and then everything was fine. But yeah, like if you, it's it's very fascinating if if you go if you start looking into a ASMV and see how uh, things are moving around and to just uh, be more efficient and do things more efficient for you. Uh, like it's really hard to read, but you can get that sense of how how things work and it makes you think uh, how you would write your code in the future in a way that you could make things easier for them to optimize. And in that way, I had a lot of conversations uh, with Lucas Larson from the OTPT, and he's a good friend of mine. We, we even lived together a bunch of years ago. And, and I remember he was saying that use built-in functions as much as you can, because then you actually let the compiler do all this magic for you. Don't write your own functions. Use as much as we give you and and then things will be easier and faster and better. Nice tip. All right. Well, one of the things I would like to transition to now is talking about the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, uh, because you had mentioned how you know you've been in this space pretty much your entire professional career, and I know that you are one of the founding members of the EEF. And I just kind of love to hear about how that got started, and you know what uh, what where as you're ha having these discussions, you know and establishing the goals for the group like how, what was that like and how'd that go wow that's uh so the foundation uh is uh it's yes a non-profit we have registered in california we're waiting for our uh, legal status of non-profit just yet in a few weeks i haven't got it just yet so we we are a group of erlan and elixir uh uh, very passionate people from uh, with different backgrounds, different companies, different parts of the world, very diverse. And we just have something in common that we like uh, this philosophy of how things are running in this virtual machine. We love this model of processes and, and the potential it, it brings. And, and we want to make this language, both languages and all of them, all of them, we want to take them to the next level and we want to work together to get there. So uh, there was an industrial airline user group a few years ago that was working on that goal and we slowly started to bring uh, in more people and decided that uh, in order to move forward, we needed to be a foundation where that people could own, so it should be a little bit less uh, focus on company, more focus on, on the people. And, and around a year, a year ago, uh, two, a year and a half ago, we started working on getting um, all the rules out and started working on the web phase, started working on getting registered and get the foundation and, and out, started talking with companies to get funding and start 
and getting these working groups and starting to and, and this is a really great moment to say um, that we need to have people uh, like you to tell us uh, what to do. And we, we have a process in which uh, you can join us in different ways. You can help us in different ways. You can tell your company to be sponsor and they can donate a, bit, a little bit of money and, and then we will do things with that money. You can uh, come to our, one of our working groups and bring us a project you want to do, something you're passionate about, something that you think needs to get done. Come with to us and, let's, and tell us, hey, we need to do this and this is what we need to get it done. And it, does, it, it can be... It can be money, but it can. It doesn't necessarily be money. It just might be. Just might be get the right uh, pieces connect, connected uh, to get the project move forward, and maybe just visibility. And so we want you to come to us uh, to let us know. Join our working groups. Uh, there is. Uh, we also have a stipend process if you need a uh, small funding uh, for some project or for uh, or maybe. This, I don't know, a personal a project or, or something. If there's something you uh, think is worth doing and you need our help, uh, there is uh, a form on the webpage you know, so you can get in touch with us and then we can talk uh, about the next steps. We, we typically want like projects for open source projects go through working groups because we want some, like a solid structure that uh, could help them move forward. But we are open to hear uh, your ideas. And then, of course, you can become a member, and you should become a member uh, because uh, elections uh, should be coming in a few months, and you want to vote for, for the new board. Uh, and so we need you. We need you to, to move this forward. Uh, so for that, you just go to, yeah, to our page uh, and register yourself. Uh, being a member is free, but of course, it would be great if you could pay a membership for a membership fee. And I think uh, joining uh, the membership is $100 per year, and that gives you voting rights and the ability to kind of have more involvement, right? Mm -hmm. But otherwise, as just joining as a member, it's free, and you get, uh, you're able to also separately, you can uh, subscribe to newsletters where there's a monthly newsletter that goes out saying these are the different things that are the initiatives that are going on in the news in the community. So there's a lot of uh, good things that people are trying to help push uh, forward. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just really excited about the existence of the foundation. I feel like that was a piece that was uh, I don't know missing is the right word, but yeah, I feel like missing. And uh, I'm excited about you can go and look at the sort of breadth of working groups that have already been formed, and it's it seems really good. I know the observability working group. I've already seen stuff coming out of there that's nice and used it. So. <laughs> Yeah, um, since I'm more close, for instance, with the educational working group, and just to give you some insights, we're trying, at the moment, we're trying to figure out what will be uh, the best strategies uh, to bring education to a wider uh, population of, uh, of engineers. Uh, so uh, we're open to hear, if you have any idea of something that, I uh, think it's worth doing that hasn't been done yet, uh, please reach out to us. We would love to hear. And what is the best way for people to uh, contact uh, members of the group or, or specific working groups? Yeah, so there is a, in the webpage, uh, which is erlef.org, uh, there is a section called working groups and they, they're listed there. And then if you click on one, the members uh, sh are also already listed. So if you know someone from there, 
just go to Slack and reach out to us. We are pretty much in every Slack channel of Erland and Elixir or in Twitter. It's not really that hard to find us. But each working group has an, an email, so also just write to us and, 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 and let us know. Awesome. Well, that's probably a great place to wrap things up. Uh, let's move to picks. Josh, do you have something? I'm going to pick just the generic guitars. So maybe you should give a little background. Like, do you play the guitar? I don't want to give any background. Guitars. Check them out. Yeah, Christmas is coming. There you go. Guitars. All right. Um, I was going to share one uh, kind of in the spirit of Christmas coming. Uh, if you have someone in your life who is very much uh, a fan of Star Wars, there is a, I would consider it somewhat obnoxious and funny, but there is a, uh, a, a book series that takes the original three Star Wars movies and does them as uh, Shakespearean. And so it's William Shakespeare Star Wars trilogy. And you know, you just got to see the artwork for this because it's hilarious. They got like, you know, Lando Calrissian with these like poofy pants, like, you know, start, you know, uh, Shakespeare style. And like, you can look inside the book and see uh, and read some pages and see how it's actually done. It's like, it's still done in iambic pentameter. And, you know, it's just, it's hilarious. Uh, just, uh, you know, it's, it's following the same dialogue, uh, but it's done in Shakespeare. So it's a fun one just to consider that for someone in your life who likes Star Wars and you can surprise them. Maybe, but you know, that might already be on their wish list and they've, they've been wanting that. Uh, the other one I was going to mention is uh, we recently had a, a Utah Elixir meetup and I was able to record this one without any big technical uh, problems. And so I put that on YouTube and it was a, a local member of our group. Uh, his name is Cody Pohl and he was presenting on Elixir in Docker. And specifically, uh, he gave an awesome tip on doing multi-stage builds to dramatically speed up the process. So like the, the next day after this, I went to work and I did this and cut several minutes off of my CI pipeline. And so the idea is, you know, you can have multi-stage Docker builds and he did it where uh, he was doing the NPM stage. So you'd have the compile stage, which is just the Elixir code. Then you have the NPM JavaScript side as a separate stage so that he could do the NPM install and all of the asset build and everything. And if that didn't change, that wasn't redone. And just pull the results of that into a final build. Uh, so check that out. It's a great one, good resource. And Eric, how about you? Uh, so I will go ahead and pick uh, Lone Star Elixir. Um, so that's coming up in February. Um, I will be speaking there talking about stateful applications again. So yeah, it's a pretty, it was a, it was a pretty cool conference. Uh, the organizers have changed. It's now the gig city organizers. I've heard great things about gig city. So I'm sure Lone Star will be also great uh, once again. So yeah, check that out. Miriam, how about you? Oh, I didn't know you could pick two picks. So I'm going to take two picks too. <laughs> the first pick uh, is, um, I would, I would suggest uh, if you have the time, check out the blog uh, from from the Erlang OTP team, it's blog erlang.org. There's uh, one of the last entries is from Lucas Larson. He always creates great posts. With this. Uh, this is one is about persistent term. And he gives uh, three use cases in which uh, persistent terms and cultures are used uh, to make your application faster. I found it really fascinating, very interesting, uh, something to read. And, and then come to, I would say, come to Code B in San Francisco after 
after the other, <laughs> after Lone Star, because uh, I'll be there. So it's going to be, and it's going to be really, really great, really great uh, conference uh, where you, you can uh, learn a lot of stuff from both Erlan and Elixir uh, that's happening in the city. Great. All right. Well, Miriam, thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure talking with you. If people would like to follow you online or connect with you, where should they go to do that? Well, um, Miriam Pena on Twitter, Miriam Pena on GitHub. That's pretty much it. All right. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Yay. Yay. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.